It's not indictment. That's just that's just what you what, what you grow up with informs how you look at your hobbies and your leisure time and your activities. And so I think the expectation for miniature wargaming as as a new generation enters into it is going to be more colored by what they did as young people to enjoy themselves and what they view as a hobby. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Ash Barker, the uh, guy behind Gorilla Miniature Games. Now I'm sure most of you are already subscribed to his channel, but uh, if you're not, he is probably one of the most prolific content creators for mini games. He and I talk about uh, game design. We talk about the overall landscape of miniature games, what he thinks uh, makes for a good game. We talk about two of the games that he's designed and the new anthology that he's putting out. It's interesting to see his perspective on games, um, especially when we talk about competitive play. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play, or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Greg here on the third floor. Today, I'm talking with Ash Barker of Gorilla Miniatures. Now, for most of you, he does not need an introduction. His YouTube channel is one of the biggest for miniature gaming. He releases videos daily that cover everything in the hobby, painting, gadgets, and awesome battle reports for what seems like every single mini game being played today. Uh, I've been a big fan and a patron of his for some time now, uh, and his high-quality, prolific content is released daily. Uh, now, a lot of my listeners are Malifaux use, uh, players, and you guys, I'm sure, have seen his great Malifaux content. So what I'm hoping to do today is to learn how he became a full-time content creator and game designer. I also want to talk about some of the games he's designed and just his overall take on the minigame landscape. Now, he plays uh, many of the games out there, and I'm excited to get his take on the hobby. So, Ash, welcome to the third floor. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. So, uh, guests on my podcast, when it's their first time, I've got to get the, how did you first find out about miniature gaming? So, how did you get into miniature gaming? So, um, I discovered Toy Soldiers, actually, in the back of a... um, a choose your own adventure book series called fighting fantasy back in the eighties. Okay. Uh, so fighting fantasy, for those who don't remember it was, uh, before there was a thing called video games, there was uh, <laughs> another thing called choose your own adventure books. And they were basically video games that you operated manually by holding, yep. holding your fingers in between about two dozen different pages of books. Um, so you go back if you died and, uh, and the co-founders of games workshop, uh, two guys named Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, um, wrote an incredibly successful series of uh, choose your adventure fantasy books called fighting fantasy in the eighties. Um, and so they uh, ended up collaborating with um, a guy named Brian Ansel who owned this little company called Citadel miniatures. Yep. And they would advertise for Citadel miniatures in the backs of their books. Um, and so I discovered Citadel miniatures there uh, and then started noticing him at like the local comic book store. And then um, my best friend, Chris kite, his older brother, James had like a room full of them and we'd sneak in and look at them and he'd beat us up. And then, you know, <laughs> like these two eight year old kids would, uh, would do little things. Um, and I actually probably didn't meet another apart from James who had no time for us because he was a teenager and we were like eight years old. Um, 
I didn't probably meet another miniature wargamer like in the flesh probably until I went to the first Games Workshop store in Canada, which was Games Workshop Queen Street. Okay. Um, and uh, I collected lots of Citadel miniatures, and we just kind of made up games with them. Like we didn't really like we didn't follow any rules, and I played a lot of miniatures games by myself, just telling stories and painting sure. soldiers. Um, and yeah, and so that basically graduated into kind of like that that lapsing on and off life of. Collecting my soldiers, um, I got a, a subscription to White Dwarf when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and I had it until 2014, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and so it was a it was a it just one of those constants in your life. Even if you lapse on the hobby, you discover girls and yep. beer and skateboarding and whatever things you know music that distract you. Um, I always had White Dwarf, and I always had painting toy soldiers when I was you know wanting to relax or feeling lazy or whatever. Um, and yeah, I started working in the wargaming industry in 2001. I got a part-time job while I was at art school, uh, working for Games Workshop and that turned into a career at Games Workshop that was about 13 years long. Wow. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. No, I was one of the, um, North American directors of sales at Games Workshop until 2014. Interesting. Yeah. And then I came back to Canada. I was living in Memphis at the time, working for Workshop at their, um, North American headquarters. Yep. Came, back, came back to Canada in 2014 and... Decided I was going to stay home with the kids and invented a invented a career. <laughs> so, and I've heard bits of this, right? And listening to your content, I've heard a little bit of the story of kind of that transition, though I didn't realize or maybe remember the Games Workshop piece. Mm-hmm. So the decision was, I'm you know I'm going to stay at home, Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the idea of going, you know what, let's start a YouTube channel, or did it start with a YouTube channel, or did you think something else? Well, I was I spent eight months working for Mini Wargaming. Uh, by accident, almost. I just answered a, I answered that on Facebook that Matthew from Anywhere Gaming put up looking for people playing Infinity. I just come back to the Niagara region. Um, I was painting Infinity miniatures, and I thought, cool, there's a guy playing Infinity. I had no real idea who they were, um, and I just stumbled in there thinking I was going to play a game of Infinity and end up being on camera. And then right. about six weeks later, they offered me a job, and I worked there for about eight months until we had cash. Um, and then... Yeah, it was just one of these, the, the whole YouTube channel thing started because I had enjoyed filming battle reports and I was leaving Mini Wargaming and decided, hey, wouldn't maybe be cool to keep doing these? And so I ran a GoFundMe to see if I could get a camera um, and ended up with a studio. <laughs> it was, it was, I was apparently a lot more a lot more successful with that than I thought I was going to be. And I, I think I asked for like three grand or something like that to buy a camera and you know, some editing software or whatever. Uh, and I ended up with like 12 or 13. I ended up with basically like a year's rent for a studio and, and a camera and it, all the things I need to start recording. And so I just went, well, okay, people seem to like this and they're excited to meet me to do it. So I'll, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do something, I'll, I'll yeah. give, it, give it the whole shot. And so that was in 2015 and that's 2020. And yeah, here we, here we are. <laughs> I'm writing, I'm writing books and I have my own little like design studio and I'd still mostly just spend time with my kids and yeah, and traveling around. So I'd be curious, like schedule wise, because it's like people people uh, you know say to me I can't believe I put out a weekly podcast, and I say that's nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I know somebody who puts out daily videos. <laughs> so so one of the things that I did right in the very beginning when I started doing this because I'm I I am business minded. I spent you know 14 years running the business side of Toy Soldiers, right and. So I do, I do have my brain sort of like systematically wired to, to think in the terms of like, how do you, how do you run this as a business? So before I even, I even started posting content daily, I spent a month making content. So I had this like catalog of things that I'd made and I, and I did that even before I started asking for money. 
So, mm-hmm. so there was no Patreon or anything like that before that. And the idea there was like, I shouldn't, I can't really ask anybody for like, I've just been given all this money to do this. And I can't really ask anybody for more than that at this point because I haven't done anything yet. Like I haven't made any right. I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's the, it's the Homer Simpson sitting in the chair being like, can I have some money now to the internet guy? Like, <laughs> that's what I felt like. I felt like kind of a fraud. So I was like, I should just do like a whole bunch of work and yeah. then make a whole bunch of content that people can see. And then at least I have this, like this sort of like, um, I guess, uh, uh, history of, of at least having made something like you need to, you need right. to have a product and, and, yep. and something I've done. So I picked a few games that I liked. Um, Malfoy was one of them right in the very beginning. Uh, I've made some more machine hearts content. I made some warmer fancy battle content, a bit of 40 K content, but I was kind of burned out on 40 K. Um, and then tons of infinity content. Cause that was the game I was really passionate about at the time. Yep. And I spent the first year just really making stuff and always trying to be four weeks ahead in my content production. Now I've gotten a lot of comments with Ashley recently because people are like, how are you still having guests and it's COVID-19? You're not wearing masks. You know, and I'm like, well, I was filmed in like January. Like that was, yeah. <laughs> you have to realize that a lot of this content you're watching right now, we made in like January, February. And it was long before there was a pandemic and like, and it rolls out on a conveyor belt. Right. So it's, it's, I think this week, and I look at my calendar right now, if I look at this week, I think this week is the first week where it's, yeah, it's a hundred percent solo content except for today. Today was, today was a Clarence video. And then next week, I think it's a hundred percent just, solo yeah. Stuff. yeah, next week is like a hundred percent solo stuff. So we're in, we're in a, we're in like a, uh, uh, it's like a, a time dilation, right? We're catching up to where, where I was basically like the middle of February when all this stuff started. Yeah. I'm eight deep on, on, on episodes right. so my listeners are familiar with that because like the episode last week was you know filmed or recorded in january so yeah um that's smart and that was gonna be actually my next question um was how deep you are um as far as episodes that so that helps it's a 20 usually it's a bit 20 because it's i so something's still film weekly like on the paint table films weekly because it's what i'm working on that week right uh which is waters usually films weekly because it's it's a it's a hot and cold episode it's when people have new cool things that show up so it's like it's kind of like an on-demand thing yep um and then same with uh with um let's talk because let's talk is more like when i have an interesting guest and we have the chance to to talk it it's there's like some more a la carte stuff so the weekend's kind of a la carte if there's a book to review if there's something that's like neat then that stuff gets done sort of like on time and there are occasions where like i'll mix the i'll push the schedule around if something's like really topical and i don't want to wait for it but i'm i've got 20 there's there's basically 20 pieces of thing of, of content usually typically in the hopper and if i'm planning on taking a vacation i might like blitz a week and make like up to 25 and that way you've got, you take a week off and you, yep. you, you just roll that content out. You don't worry about making it in that week. Um, but that's my best advice. Like, cause one of the things that I think people ask me like, well, how did you, how did you succeed? How did you do what you did? Uh, and it's, it's just, I think that relentless, um, productivity is a big part of it. Like people want to pe- people who are viewing content. And I think this will almost any YouTuber will say this. They, they want it to be there when they, when it's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And they do a little bit set their lives around the arrival and the consumption of that content. So I've had tons of people tell me that like somebody's wife sent me a message asking if I would send like a happy birthday to somebody who like watches who watches um, GMG. And they're like, they're like, in our house, you get referred to as his breakfast his, it was his morning breakfast boyfriend. <laughs> like, like, always there. like, I'm just this thing that like goes on in the morning and yeah. his whole family has to like deal with me and like listen to me talk and, and be an idiot. Um, and, but, but you, I think that if you have an appreciation for that, if you have an appreciation that people bring you into their homes and their lives, like on a schedule and you make sure the content's always there. Yep. Um, 
it, it does go a long way to success because you become a reliable kind of like point and people and like people really notice if you miss a day all of a sudden. Oh, I get PMs. So I release my stuff Tuesday mornings and, and if I get up and something happened and didn't come out, I, my private messages are full. So I know, and I'm, I can't imagine because you've got far more uh, audience yeah. than I do. You must yeah. just it's, get blown up. It's, it, it's there's, there's, there's a reality where like, you just can't keep get, like, I, I've, I, I find myself very often apologizing and being like, I, people will send me a ping and be like, Hey, I'm sorry. Did I offend you with that message? Or did I, I'll be like, it just got buried. Like, I'm so sorry. It's like, I have, I have like 976 unresponded messages that I'm literally never going to be able to see. That stresses so, me if out. You haven't, if you haven't heard from <laughs> If you haven't heard from me for a while, just send me another message and bust your way to the top of the queue. I'm not ignoring you. I literally just I I don't have a personal assistant to read all my correspondence. I'm sorry. That's funny. Just, if I, when Kat can read a little bit better, I'll just get her to read it all in response. Uh, there you go. Um, so the last thing I want to do before we take a break is I want to find out, you know, now you're several years into this, right? Is there anything that you would have done different if you could go back in time or if you could whisper in a time machine to uh, 2015? Mm. or did you just nail it <laughs> sorry crushed it no mistakes <laughs> um no, no I'm, I'm full of, i'm deep i'm deep swimming in regrets uh <laughs> so so i think the first thing is um i did for a while spend a lot of time worrying about what the most popular kind of content was and i don't think making popular content got me anywhere yeah. Because like, so to give you an example, um, making 40 K videos is like the most common wargaming thing probably on any social media platform. You know, you could, you can yep. start an Instagram account and paint pretty toy soldiers and have 10,000 followers probably inside of a week. Um, if you're really talented and, uh, it, you can turn that into a business for sure. Absolutely. But the problem is that there are so many people in the same fishbowl as you, if you want to turn it into a, a legitimate long-term like business, like, like where, where that's something that you're going to try and live off of. Right. You have to realize that the commodity isn't the thing you're making videos about. The commodity is you exactly. and how you, and how you do that. Yep. Um, and I realized after probably the first two or three years that chasing the most popular content wasn't actually, it didn't actually matter what games I made videos about. Um, it mattered more that the people I was doing it with were fun to watch and were having a good time. And we made, we made a, a really good sort of like show of um, enjoying that thing. And it was just like different and, and varied and, and, and good hearted and not tearing things down. Um, and, and that's what I think ended up making me sort of like launch the last three years is there's a certain amount of like, I, I, I could find out from X, Y, or Z people, whatever this news is or whatever this new game is, or I could watch somebody play it here maybe earlier or whatever, but I actually care more about what this guy thinks or how this guy's going to present it to me. And that's, that's, I think where I'm trying to like drill the value down for what I do is, is I want people to be able to see somebody enjoy something, but be honest about it. You know, like if it's got words, it's got words. Like who cares? Like, yep. <laughs> cool. Like that's one of the, honestly, some of the charms of some of those popular miniature games and war games and tabletop games of all time isn't actually what's good about the game. It's yeah. what's terrible about the game. Like that's true. It's, it's thing that you go and you're like, yeah, but then there was this, and remember this edition of the game where like this could happen. <laughs> and like, and then, like everybody, everybody talks about um, the golden age of like games or workshop games being like the eighties and nineties. 
But nobody remembers like the cyclone missile launcher that could just like carpet bomb your deployments on the first turn. With a it was tr- a terrible a game. Track missile. It was a terrible game. A terrible it's, game. It taking eight and a half hours to play for the interval game. It right. It was, like, it was like doing, or like remembers Battletech and like doesn't remember filling in circles for like 700 hours. And get, you get carpal tunnel trying to fill out your mech sheets to, to build your actual line mechs in Battletech. Yeah. Nothing, nothing drives me crazy. And I'm, I don't play 40K anymore, but nothing would drive me crazy because I'm old enough to remember Rogue Trader. Right. And you get you get old dudes going, you know, oh, Rogue Trader was the epitome. I'm like, Rogue, Rogue Trader was like literally the worst game ever created. <laughs> like, it's amazing they survived. It's not. It's not. It wasn't. The thing was, it was. A, it was an RPG with miniatures. Like, it's right. I, I think. I think we. You can't even compare old games to contemporary games exactly. because they're not made. They're not made the same way. Contemporary games are actually just video games with with physical components, whereas, uh, and they and they have this like this real obsession with like being balanced and being fair whereas yeah. old games tended to be tended to be obsessed with being memorable to be the thing mm-hmm. that like shocked you or made you laugh or made was interesting yeah. and different and like or made you go aha i get that reference i i think that there's a there's a certain amount of that and so i think that's what i'm trying to capture i guess is is that 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 bit of difference in what i do versus what i was trying to do in the beginning now is i'm more about trying to capture what it feels like to play games than i am just trying to get it right and trying to be like the best at it like i don't give a shit well i, I was about to say Ash, I, that. I think what what turned me on to you from the when i first came across you is one and this is you know what you've been saying it, it always looked like you're having a good time and that's why we do this, right? That's why we play with toy soldiers. And then the other part was that um, it wasn't you trying to say, I'm the best guy, right? I know all the answers. I can play this better than anybody. And you're going to become a better player because you've listened to me. You didn't present yourself as an expert at any of the games you're playing, but you and somebody else just had a good time playing. Um, and I've stolen a little bit of that from you and uh, in, in my show, because I'm a, t- I'm a terrible Malifaux player. <laughs> Um, I might have one of the largest Malifaux podcasts there is, but I'm terrible at the game. And I straight out tell everybody right out of the gate, like, I am bad at this game. Don't, don't but, say don't Exactly. Say but if I have the right guests on, maybe it's worth listening, right? Yeah. I, well, I think that's a, I think that's a valuable lesson just in, in your hobbies in general is that, is that you, if you break down how much time you spend in, in whatever your hobby is, not mountain climbing or if it's biking or playing video games or you know, play miniature games, like it, 90% of what you actually spend your actual, like, like verifiable time minutes and seconds on isn't doing the thing that you like in your hobby. It's actually thinking about getting ready for, or discussing the aftermath of that hobby. And, and the, and the enjoyment of that, the game outside the game, it's actually, uh, there's a great book by Richard Garfield about about that in relation to Dungeons and uh, to Dungeons and Dragons to um to Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the greatest success of Magic the Gathering isn't playing Magic the Gathering. It's design decks and discussing design decks and obsessing over design decks and all of the things that come from um the the game outside the game. And mm-hmm. and I think that's a real that's a real kind of forgotten forgotten um um attribute in miniature wargaming. Especially if you were like, like, let's say I'm Timmy and I'm like 10 years old and I'm, I'm approaching miniature wargaming for the internet. If I was to try and figure out what the values are of miniature wargamers and what's important, the internet would have me so messed up because I'd be yeah. like, I'd be like, oh, it's to be the best painter, it's to be the best player, it's to be this, it'd be that, because it's just it's a it's the it's the shout box mentality of like, what do you think is supposed to be great? 
And I think the, the worst part of that isn't actually to Timmy, the little kid who might get turned off by it. It's actually to the companies that make the games thinking that that's actually their customer. Base. Right. Right. I think, I think, um, you saw it happen with, uh, with Project Your Press and, and War Machine Hordes is that they went down a hole of, oh, this, it's actually, it's actually really important that we get these games perfect. And they right. became obsessed with making the perfect miniature game rather than making a fun miniature game. Mm-hmm. Um, but they forgot that they don't get paid every time someone plays a game. They get paid every time somebody buys a miniature. Right. And so it's hard to keep the lights on with like, I don't know, battle stats on some <laughs> website. <laughs> you don't pay a lot of salaries that way. Yeah. Putting all your labor into releasing new rules every week. Right. Well, and that's, and, and I think that's you're if you're trying to placate the noisy crickets, you're just going to lose your mind. Like you can't yeah. do that. You just got to make something you're proud of. And that is fun to play. And that, the vast majority of people who are quiet are quiet because they're happy with what you made. Nobody yep. on the internet say good things, right? Who goes yeah. <laughs> just no, me? They I'm, don't. I'm an idiot. Like <laughs> who goes on the internet to be happy? Nobody. <laughs> who goes on the internet to make other people unhappy? That's the whole. That's exactly. That is the goal. <laughs> <laughs> the goal. If I can't ruin someone's day. I have yeah. not. I've not satisfied my obligation to the internet. You're not interneting, right? <laughs> no. No, I'm not gonna, I'm, I need a, I need a Randy from South Park my day. Get this glass of wine and then just start trolling people. Uh, that's funny well guys we're going to take a quick break when we get back from this break i want to talk to ash about uh last day zombie apocalypse a miniature game that he has uh put together and made and uh, i'm anxious to learn more about it so we'll be right back hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So now that we got kind of an idea of, you know, how, uh, you know, GMG got where it is and how Ash got where he is, um, I do want to talk about um, a game that he's designed. We're actually going to talk about two games um, that he's designed. Um, and what I'm really anxious to hear is because something that I've always enjoyed about Ash's work is, is how prolific it is across the uh, gamut. Um, he plays the big games, the small games. There's games that I discovered through Ash um, and his channel. So I feel like um, he has a comprehensive knowledge of, of, you know, rules and mechanics and things like that. So last day's zombie apocalypse. What's the what's the elevator pitch? So it's the elevator pitch for last days is in 2009. I was traveling a whole lot for work. And, um, my buddy Jay and I had started buying, uh, modern miniatures from hassle free and from Reaper and stuff. And we didn't have a game for it. So I wrote a game. Um, and I just owned lots of zombie miniatures, studio miniatures, making these awesome zombies, uh, hassle free is making these cool, like modern day adventures. And there wasn't really anything in the market like it. And what usually happens when I start writing is that I have this like shelf full of toy soldiers or miniatures that I want there to be something to do with. I don't want to get them off the shelf. 
Um, and so we wrote a game in 2009, and it was fun. And the game in 2009 that I wrote was really different from what actually got published by Osprey. Um, and the reason it was really different was it was based more on what I thought miniature war games were supposed to be. I was working for a workshop, and it was almost like I wrote army lists, and the army lists had themes, and it kind of like right. it kind of like forced you into the theme of what you were doing and what you were making and what you were painting. Um, and so in 2016, 17, I ran, someone asked me to play last days. They, they, they had zombie miniatures and they wanted to play the game. And so a friend of mine had me print off the rules that I made back then. And we played some games on, on the internet and I, I got an offer from Osprey to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the version that I played online, I did the demos for, or I did the, the, the like short series for was pretty different from what, from what I'd originally written. And so I, when I got the contract and I, I, I was going to be publishing it, I went back and I just tore the whole thing down. I liked, I liked the core mechanics of it. It's like an AP based system. I liked the way that I handled the zombies because they were Romero zombies. They weren't fast zombies, but I like, I kept the template for how the, the bad guy or the environmental AI worked so that if I wanted to, I could plug other things into it. I could make like a robot apocalypse or a werewolf apocalypse or whatever. Um, that's something I'm going to play with later. But the core of the game isn't, the core of zombie movies isn't about like armies, it's about people. And so right. I stripped the game back down to um, be a lot more. Here's your miniature wargaming or here's your miniature collection of things that you like. Pick the ones you like and play with them. And so the the force building for last days, the thing that makes kind of unique is you pick your leader because every zombie movie has the guy, the exceptional individual, yeah. the man or woman who steps up and says, "I'm going to save all these people and lead them to the end of the world." And um, and the thing that makes zombie movies different, if you talk to a film student, short story long, is that zombie movies actually aren't horror movies. Zombie movies are disaster movies. Correct. And the disaster is the zombies. And so, so the zombies are an environmental factor. I didn't want people to have to play them. I want people to be able to be the exceptional individuals that survive the disaster. So if you look at Night of the Living Dead, it actually has more in common with like the Poseidon Adventure or Towering Inferno than it does yeah. with um, Interesting. Like, uh, a horror movie like Halloween or something right. like that. And so um, the exceptional individuals all are in every zombie movie are different and they have different like beliefs. And so that was the template for the game was if you pick the everyday hero, he's going to surround himself mostly with people like him, but there's always somebody in the group in the zombie movie who's different. And so you have a certain amount of people who are neutral, a certain amount of people that have the same belief system as you. And then you always have an outlier that you argue. There's always a Daryl from the walking dead that, you know, Rick argues with, and it's like totally different. Um, And, and with the idea of being that when I wrote the game, it didn't matter what your model collection was. If you were excited about some toy soldiers from like the zombie apocalypse, you could go or Mad Max or whatever. You could fit them into this game and play. Um, and then you go off and you tell stories. And the, and the important thing from there with me was the game didn't try and be fair and balanced. The game surprised and delighted you. And the game had these like little ever afters where the game kept going after the actual miniature stopped moving around. You stopped rolling dice. Um, uh, explain that to me. I don't know if I understand that. So there's three key elements. There's, there's, um, what's called uh, um, memorable moments. So things you remember in a game um, cracker jacks, which are things that you get to discover in a game and then ever afters and ever afters are things that happen. Those are my three key design elements in designing games. So memorable moments are when the rules do something that you didn't plan for them to do that surprise and delight you either good or bad. doesn't matter what it is. Right. It could be like you shoot a guy near a piece of terrain, like a car. And because you roll a one, the car alarm goes off and a bunch more zombies pour on the board or like a door, you go walk too close to a door and something grabs you or whatever. Like those are memorable moments and you can't script them. And you need to write them in such a way that they don't repeat too often because otherwise they just become a part of the game experience. It's not exciting anymore. It's boring. 
Um, and then Cracker Jacks are the excitement of you've done something in the game. You've succeeded in some way and you get a reward when you're done. So that's, that tends to be in, um, in, uh, in game terms. Like let's say you get a loot counter, a supply counter of some type off the table. You get to see what was in it afterwards. So you crack it open and it's a pile of junk or it's something cool or it's a minigun. You know what I mean? Like, hey, that's super cool. Um, and you get that little like rush of like, yeah, I did good. You know, you did good, get bad. And even even if you sucked during the game and you watch your opponent get something cool, it actually still elicits like an emotional response yep. and it's positive to your overall gameplay. And then ever afters are um, the best example. Ever after, I can I can I can I can give you in zombie culture and, and storytelling is actually the credit reel to the 2003 Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder, okay. where um, uh, Jim Carroll Band's playing and it's cutting back and forth between the credits and actually what happens when they ride the boat out to the island afterwards. And right. there's a little cut back and forth where, you, where the movie's over, like you think the movie's over, but you get this little bit of snippet of like what happens afterwards. And then it all ends with like, they get off the dock at the island and they're like, hello. And then you just hear like the drums for drowning pool and down with the sickness starts to play and the zombies all come part of the trees and then bleh, it's just all over. Like, <laughs> and, and, and that's what I, when I say ever afters, I mean the thing that happens afterwards. So, it's when your characters get taken off because they lose all their hit points. Did they die? Did they get bit? Did they, you know what I mean? Like that little bit of extra story needed to gotcha. be reflected in the rules of the game. Because that's what Last Days does is it, it provides kind of those three things in a zombie apocalypse setting. Um, and then the supplement, the first supplement, which came out last year in 2019. So Last Days came out in 2018. Uh, Seasons came out in 2019. Um, and then I'm doing a supplement called Timelines in a new magazine I'm publishing called Blaster. Um, which will be coming out in May, sometime, maybe, maybe June. Um, and then a bunch of other supplements and stuff for it too. Chaos theory and stuff, some free supplements that are on the Astro website. But, uh, that's the elevator pitch. Yeah. If you like zombies and you gotta, if you have a cop, basically, if you have a copy of, um, Zombicide that you haven't touched in a long time, you could buy this rulebook and be ready to play in like five minutes. That's cool. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes. So is it something that you can play solo? You mentioned the zombies yeah. are an AI, so you can just be you and playing the game. You got it, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You can play. You can play against the game. You can play cooperatively. There's rules for co-op multiplayer games too. Um, those are all published in seasons. But I actually, uh, when the pandemic started, we pulled them out. And I made them a free supplement. So you can, if you were just nice. buy the core rulebook, you can get the solo and cooperative rules for free um, on, nice. on the on the website because you just want people to be able to play games. And so it felt like it felt like the right thing to do if you own a copy of the, the core rules. You should be able to play it. And was it you filming? you playing with your buddy that got you on the radar for Osprey. Is that how they found you or how did that come together? Sort of, (laughs) sort of. It was, it was that I was doing that and also getting to know Joe from Frostgrave because I'd started filming Frostgrave. Um, Late too, like Frostgrave been out for like six months. <laughs> and everyone was like, it's like Mordheim. And I was like, ah, nothing's like Mordheim. What is the greatest game that ever made? It's garbage. Nothing, it's garbage compared to Mordheim. Um, it turns out to be a really good game. It was really good. Yeah, it was super fun. Yeah. And so, so we, um, we played the hell out of Frostgrave actually. I talked like everybody into playing Frostgrave for a long time, but that's how I got to know Joe. And then Joe and I collaborated on a bunch of things. And that was just, it was just one of those like organic things where like, oh, sure. you have a game, you know, that kind of thing. And we started talking to our editor, Phil, and, I don't like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds stupid, but I don't really seek this stuff out. It just kind of happens. And I just never say no. And so I <laughs> <laughs> like, if people, if people want a good answer, I don't really have a good answer. The answer is always like, and then I met someone and they thought that we should do this. And I said, okay. And then, <laughs> and then like, and here I am. And then the journalist <laughs> is like, 
what? <laughs> People familiar with what? you are saying that. Why do this? I was like, I don't know. He's telling my mom. That's cool. That's cool. Well, guys, let's take another break. When we get back from this break, I'm going to talk about a game that I believe Ash isn't out, right? Gamma Wolves is not out yet. Um, if, you, if you're one of my patrons, you have the, the beta and stuff like that, but it comes out in September. Excellent. We're going to talk a little bit about that and then we'll uh, talk a little bit more about YouTube as well. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So now that we got kind of a feel for that game, I'm interested to see what similarities and differences are in the game coming out. So the game coming out is uh, Gamma Wolves, uh, a game of post-apocalyptic mecha warfare. So you're pretty much obsessed with post-apocalypse at this point? So, yeah. Well, the thing about the post-apocalypse is it's a nice miniature wargaming MacGuffin where you don't have to build a lot of terrain. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> or if yeah. your terrain looks crappy, it kind of fits. Um, also, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a dark and disturbed individual. I think the world is <laughs> end, so it's all I write about. But, um, the, uh, the, the, there's a much lighter sort of like, uh, inception for Gamma Wolves. And it was that there's, there's quite a few indie games, um, for mecha combat, but the only really like sort of like mainstream mecha games are all pretty old and clunky. Yeah. Like, not that I don't love them they have their charm they've got their fans yep. and they've got their fans and, and and like there is a there's a definite market for um those crunchy classic they're almost more like sims like simulators than uh-huh. they are their their games um but but i love giant robots i think they're cool as hell uh and there i when i spot like a hole in the market and I, and I see miniatures that don't have a home, that's when my brain starts to tend to percolate. I'm like, I should It's really interesting how, bo- I mean, that's was the case for both things, right? You just, you're, you're inspired by having miniatures collecting dust. Literally. Yeah. And, and what tends to happen with Mecca in, in the tabletop world is they tend to be like a centerpiece. They're not like the frontline thing. You know what I mean? It's like, you can have one of this really big, cool robot and then everything else has to, but you have to take four of these little guys with rifles. You got to paint ten of those turtle and da, 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 da. like, I, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to paint our robots. Yeah. Um, and as I, as I was, a uh, uh, an avid reader in like the eighties and nineties of, um, like, I want to call it like classic, classic robot manga, like things like, um, Shirao and uh, like that Shirao's Ghost and Show, but like Shirao's Apple Seed with like Landmates and like Duna Newt and Briarios and stuff like that. That that level of like technology, where robots aren't just like they don't have arms and legs and all look like C three PO, was something I was really interested in. And so right. I started I started like conceptualizing like if 
if if I was going to try and and look at like another kind of like spot where it would be it'd be fun to play around, people aren't playing around right now. That was just that was it. And so I came up with a game where you take any robot miniature you like and you just fit it into the appropriate base size and you play games. And you design them however you want. You give them the arms and legs you want. You can tracks. You can give them wheels. You can give them jetpacks, like whatever you want to do. Um, and again, you fit the miniatures that you like and, and you could cross over things like Gunpla or Lego, or we actually play tested originally with these like Lego mecha kits we got off Amazon, me and Owen did. Um, it was a hell of a, cause just ripped their arms off if they got like, yeah. and, stuff like and it was like, the, it was like Christmas for my son. Cause when we actually started buying miniatures, he just inherited all these like robot mechas. And the problem was like the instructions were printed on like newspaper. It was all from like China or Korea or something like that. Sure. And, and like we immediately lost the instructions. So I could never build them again. He was just crestfallen. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the, that was sort of like where the kernel of the idea came from. It's like, it was like, there's all these great robot models and, and mecha models and stuff. And, and there are some cool indie games for them. There's, there's, uh, um, oh, what is it? Mobile frame something, mobile frame zero. Or something like that is a, a really cool indie game for Gunpla, and um, there's a, a, a Brick Wars kind of one too for Lego robots. Um, but I want to do something that was again that, that followed my three key sort of tenets of yep. not just uh, being a game that you play where the robots mash into each other and then fall apart, but also having like the memorable moments and the ever afters, and and so it became a, a camp like a, again like a warband campaign game where you have a team of frame pilots that are going out into the wasteland to try and scrounge enough stuff that they can bring back to their ecology so they can just kind of limp along. Um, Interesting. That's the, that's where that so from. is this a player versus player type game or is it, it's the core. So, so the core robots uh, got the game, uh, the rules for, um, for multiplayer and, and, and head to head games. And then when I do the supplements, I'll do some, I'll once again, do like a solo and cooperative mission set too, uh, uh-huh. where I bring in like, not just robots. Cause when you do that for the, for the, the 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 stuff that's like more solo and cooperative. I the I, I think I want to introduce things that aren't just robots. You know what I mean? Like the, the things that are out there that you're fighting against that are the bad guys that aren't necessarily yep. big sloppy robots too. So that felt like a whole other book. You know what I mean? Like why do we wear these giant robot suits when we go into the wastelands? Well, Timmy, there's the you know there's the salt whales, and then there's of course there's the rad scorpions, <laughs> and there's the giant albino kettlefish that we really don't want you to run into without wearing your giant robot suit. <laughs> And that didn't, that didn't like just fit into like a chapter. That was like a whole sure. other thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you find yourself, you know, as you're playing other games, seeing mechanics and saying, I think that I could work that in or I want to like, how does that, how does your exposure to all of these other games influence your design and the actual mechanics of the games so or doesn't it? It's funny because, well, <laughs> There's a scene from the Matrix. He's like, I just, I don't see the, I don't see the, the code anymore. I just see blonde, brunette, redhead. It's the, <laughs> I've, I've seen, I've played so many miniature games that they do kind of blend together, um, conceptually or um, mechanically. And so uh-huh. it's, it's, it's. It, I think the nice thing about the exposure I have to all those games is I don't, I don't tend to steal components, but, but overarching themes, things like dice pool resolution, opposed dice pool resolution, target number resolution, target number pool resolution. Like there's a, there's a huge laundry list of like styles and ways of doing things. And then you multiply that by the number and types of dice that you use. Are you using specialty dice? Are you not even using dice? And Alpha uses cards for like say, mm-hmm. fixed result resolution and a bartering system. Um, all of that just gets mashed together in your head and, 
what I tend to pick and choose isn't actually mechanically based. There's a lot of designers who really like to get like under the hood mechanically and go like, this is the best mechanic to resolve this. And this is the cleanest way to do that. Right. I'm more like a holistic game designer where I go, how does it feel when you do that thing? And, mm-hmm. and, and it's funny because actually that's, I think one of the big successes games workshop had in, in the, the mid two thousands was they realized that certain things are fun to do. Um, rolling big handfuls of dice is actually fun. Right. Uh, it's physically fun to do if you do it. If you do it occasionally, if you do it all the time, it becomes laborious and, and garbage mm-hmm. and you hate it. And that's kind of, I think, where they've pushed it to a little bit too far. Um, but rolling big handfuls of dice occasionally is like a lot of fun. And so there's a certain level of like, um, of uh, put yourself in the shoes of the player when you design mechanics and feeling mm-hmm. how they feel. One of my big criticisms of um, first edition Batman was that there was this like cognitive disc or this social disconnect for like five minutes before each game round where everyone had to go and set their dice. And you're like quietly over here, like, and it, and it felt really like, like socially, um, strained like you know like yeah i forgot that batman is about to like break the spines of like three poor you know uneducated gentlemen that the joker is like just fed nerve gas to and told to go like a karate expert um and i'm like no i gotta make sure i got the dice in the right oh i gave him too many stars and whatever and like i i forgot i was playing a game for a second right um and those i think are where i get my lessons from and when i tend to when i tend to examine games now mechanically the thing is that there's such a limited we, we only use certain things to resolve certain things so by using dice yeah. cards or whatever we, i i soak it up really fast because there's only so many ways of doing that right but what i tend to examine now when i play new games and then examine in my own games is how does it feel to to resolve the mechanics and if mm-hmm. there's something that you can improve there typically it's how do you how do you add or remove mechanics to make it so that the, there's a pace and a, a feeling and like an emotional sort of like tangent to, to play the game. So I, I've had other designers on the show uh, before, Ash, and one of the things that I always find very interesting is their process of streamlining and cutting. So one theme I keep hearing is, you know, I had the game in a spot and then I went through this process where I figured out what was in the way, like here's my goals. In your case, the goal of having that kind of that narrative emotional reaction mm-hmm. and them going through the process of, you know, not necessarily cutting it away. They would put stuff on the shelf for another game later. Um, do you do you go through that process where you have kind of this mishmash and you just go, okay, now it's time to to sand the edges? Yeah, I think that I think the well, there's, a, there's actually a design term for that. It's called or it's a writing term. It's called Slay Your Darlings. Um, yeah. If you fi- if you find that you've if you find that you are spending too much time trying to fix a mechanic you're really invested in, then that's the best indication. You should just huck it out the window. <laughs> So I try to fix something that's not going to get fixed and you're being way too precious about it. And just, and then what's the old joke? Um, the America spent a hundred thousand dollars building a pen that would write in space and the Russians brought a pencil that, yeah. that, that like that idea of like, you just do it a different way. Like you didn't yeah. have to build the space pen and it's cool. Got a Seinfeld episode, but like you could just brought a pencil yeah. and wood it worked pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, like they didn't go wax tablets or anything like that, but still, the uh, the like the the idea that you can uh, chuck something away, I think is really important, um, and that's why I tend to. So I, I, my writing is usually really process driven. The thing I write first is always the core mechanics 
So like, if that's yourself question, you start writing a game. Right. What are the players doing? What are the pieces doing? How do you accomplish both? And so those those like those tend to inform my like my writing strategy. And I I, I actually do a lot of outlining before I start writing. So I, I I wonder what the players are doing. And I actually I tend to when I write rules, I also try and do it temporally correctly. So I start with uh, what is the very first thing you need to do when you are going to get ready to play miniature wargaming. And it's usually collect all the pieces and stuff you need to play. And so I start right. with I start with that. And then I get to assembling it in this a coherent collection to put it on the table. And I go to putting it on the table and then I go to moving it around and then I go to mm-hmm. after and then why are we moving it around and then after moving it around. And so when I write rules, I'll usually point format all those processes. And it's nice because it gives me a writing template too. I can just go to the next header down and go blah, 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 and spit in 1200, 2000 words. And that's the next chapter basically done. Got it. Um, and, and so when something needs to come out, it's usually pretty simple because it's already kind of compartmentalized. I don't tend to write in such a way that I blend, I section blend, but I know some writers that really struggle with that. And so I think that if you have a nice, you're more free to slay your darlings. If you've compartmentalized processes and you have a plan for writing where if you just kind of like stream of consciousness, your rules out, and we've all read rule books where it's like, it's all like fire on the page it's a lot harder to pull something out because it might be attached to something else. You're the like, tendrils oh, are everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Like, Oh no, I can't, I can't look at shooting cause it's really enmeshed with moving and it's really yep. enmeshed with, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So I think I've been, that's just an experience thing. I think the more you write, the more you do, the, the better you get at it process wise and the more comfortable and sort of like secure you are with, with killing pieces of it too. Cause you can be, it's easy when you first do something to be really insecure about getting feedback or, even just like examining it yourself and looking at it and going, Oh, that fucking, that's terrible. <laughs> really bad. Like I wrote that. It's really bad. I made that joke in an interview with, um, I was like, who's interviewing? I was talking to, Oh no, it was me. Actually, it was me hanging out with the game designers. It was, uh, I was having a meeting with, um, the guys that I'm working on this mag, this not magazine. We're not calling it a magazine. It's a, an anthology with, and, uh, talking about how like I need to very often, I need to get an idea out of my head to stop working on it and so I have to write it down or I have to like say it to somebody or get it like physically in front of me. Not just if it's a good idea, but usually more importantly when it's a terrible idea, it's like, right. you know, I have this idea that's just not this and this. And then someone looks at it and goes, why? I'd be like, <laughs> Oh my God, you're right. That's terrible. Why did I even, what's wrong with me? And but if I you don't get it out there on. and make it alive. Yeah. Like yep. I, I can move on. I, I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Otherwise. So for you, was there a growing up between the two games or did the same guy that, that, uh, designed the zombie game designed Gamma Wolves? Oh, I designed or, or do you see yourself progressing? I designed the zombie game twice, right? Cause right. I wrote, in 2009, I wrote it again in 2016. I think I started working on the manuscript for it again. So I had a lot in between there. And I think the biggest advantage that I have as a game designer is, is that something you hinted at earlier is I just played so many games. Like right. I, you have to think that like, so, so, in, since 2015, when I started GMG, and even maybe if I was to go back and say 2014, when I, I had that brief stint in wargaming, I have played more miniature war games. And I don't just mean like like played different games. I mean like I physically stood in front of a table and like moved miniatures around, moved models, yeah, more than I have in my entire like 30 years playing games before that. Oh sure, yeah, like like easily, easily, easily. Like, <laughs> and, 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 and now in a year. I would, I would, and this isn't like me trying to sound cocky, but I would say that probably in a year, 
I play more miniature war games than the average miniature war gamer will in their entire life. I don't doubt that. Yeah. If I play, if I, if I put out five days, if I play 210 games a year, which is what I would probably, you have to think that like the average gamer does not play games. No, he's playing days. weekly. Usually, he's, right. He doesn't play five days a week. Probably plays weekly. He plays one or two games. Yep. And so, so in a year and, and that's like, and that would be like a hardcore gamer that would play like a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the average person who might play like once a month, once every other month, they're not playing 200 games in their lives. Yep. Right. So, Sorry, I was gonna say that that I think more than designing a bunch of games, that's informed my brain on like how I want to be as a, a game designer. I'm sure it, it just absorbs so much through that process, I would imagine. So the last thing I want to uh, talk about before we take another break is I want to talk about burnout. Um, how do you avoid that? How do you avoid not liking playing miniature games? Don't stick to one. Yeah, like it, and and do stuff just for yourself sometimes. Like, again, that circles back to my comment about not chasing what's popular, but doing stuff because you love it. Because I think that communicates on camera. Like, I, I think I, I know, actually, that people watching my videos can tell when I'm not really having a good time. Um, and, and I think that's obvious. Like, I think, I think that's just something that you can tell. Like, when people aren't enjoying themselves, you're doing something because you feel like you have to. And that's, that's okay. Like, there's lots of people that do that. There's a lot of, like, joyless content out there. Yeah, but, but most of my most of my content is focused on like we'd be doing this anyway, and we brought a camera. Like that's yeah, that's more, that's what it feels like. I yep. think that's what it feels like. People watching is like these are my friends. We'd be doing this anyway. Here's a camera, and you can watch us do it. Yep. Um, and so I think that's the way I've avoided burnout is that I don't I don't spend too long on one thing. Um, I go and hunt down oddities, and I make myself open to trying things I wouldn't normally try. And mm-hmm. then I do circle back to things that are mainstream because they're comforting and they're fun and they're easy and they're fun to play. And sometimes it's fun to just roll lots of dice and move much toys soldiers around. Like yeah. we, play, we play 40 K a few times a year and, and I enjoy it every time. Like it's fun because I play it with people that I that want the same thing out of it. That I do. You know what I mean? If I was to like go and play a bunch of ITC missions in a tournament, I'd be like, at the first game I'd be like, can I go home? Like my feet hurt and I'm yeah. tired and I don't want to do this anymore. Um, the, old, the only thing I miss from 40 K is the people I played 40 K with. I don't miss 40 K at all. Well, well, I think that's but I think that's exactly the point is that is that it, right. if, if you have the people, it doesn't matter what game you're playing. So exactly. I think that's how I avoid the burnout is that yep. I'm, I'm lucky in that I have just the best collection of people that through 30 years of miniature wargaming I know. You know that's and cool. That, that play, play, play games and play them for fun and they're just fun to be around. All right, guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about just kind of the landscape that's out there right now. I want to talk about other games that are out there, um, uh, kind of get uh, Ash's thoughts on uh, kind of where the hobby is at this point. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, here on the third floor you'll find us playing Malifaux and other games on Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase Merkel compatible, and lighter than neoprene. These mats use a new material that almost eliminates any glare. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a design, then choose an overlay like the one for Marvel Crisis Protocol or Malifaux 3rd Edition strats and schemes. It's going to speed up your deployment and the placement of strategy and objective markers. Until the end of June 2020, you can use the new promo code THIRDFLOOR620 to get a 10% discount on your next order. In the notes, you can ask for the Third Floor Wars logo to be put on your mat for free. 
Again, use the promo code thirdfloor 620 That's T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R 620 to get a 10% discount. All the details are in the show notes. DZ Leargard here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, and we will see you there. Recently, we broke 100 patrons. I want to thank our most recent patrons, Marcus Moore, Dronex, Joshua Story, Peter Pot, Sergey Chapovalov, Superhottie69, Adam Talbot, and Richie Richmitten. Thank you. So this is probably the part that I've been most looking forward to in talking with Ash, um, is I want to kind of get a feel um, for two things. What what does he think about um, where mini gaming is right now? And almost more importantly, I want to find out kind of his opinions um, and his thoughts on what he loves. So uh, let's start off um, for, on the competitive side. Um, how do you feel about miniature war gaming competitively? Is that something that interests you, doesn't interest you? When I say competitively, I don't mean just you and your buddy throwing dice at each other. Uh, I'm talking about yeah. tournaments, you know, and that type of thing. So, so there's two, it's a big, I mean, it's a big topic and I have kind of two big key thoughts about it. Um, the first one is that I think competitive play is actually just a generational thing. I think this like, we're really aware of it now because we are way more socially connected than we were even 15 years ago. Sure. Right. It, it, if I was trying to find infinity gamers in 2005, I wouldn't have Facebook. I wouldn't have I have like like forums, you know, like DAC and DAC and, yeah. and 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 going to a forum and 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 there's no algorithm. You just throw a pin in a map and, and hope that somebody from the same area sees it. Is very different from you know worldwide algorithms going to sort through and find everybody in my area that's interested in something. I'm going to get put into a group with them and then we're going to be able to talk about something. Um, so I think that I think that competitive play is is just as prevalent now as it was back then, but I think that it's far more interconnected. The tournaments connect to each other. There's a lot more of a bigger, like a landscape of like people being aware of who the best players are and throwing up in lights and talking about them and discussing them. But I still believe that nobody gets paid except for the event organizer when someone plays a game. And so it doesn't right. actually define miniature wargaming. Um, but I can see why socially it's being pushed that way because the, the generations that currently have that equilibrium of free time to disposable cash, uh, is the millennial generation that grew up more on video games, I think, than they did on books and RPGs and and, and more like Luddite games. And so they're they're a little less likely to hear the horns and the drums when they look down at the miniature gaming table and a lot more likely to to have experienced uh, a, a game landscape where, you know, you 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 get dropped into the arena, you have your gun, you go kill, you reset, mm-hmm. you play again. Mm-hmm. And it's not indictment. That's just that's just what you what, what you grow up with informs how you look at your hobbies and your leisure time and your activities. And so I think the expectation for miniature wargaming as, as a new generation enters into it is going to be more colored by what they did as young people to enjoy themselves and what they view as a hobby. Um, and so does that make us generationally feel detached from it? I think yes. I think that's okay. Um, because I think what happens now is where the, the people who were kind of like put up in lights before, which is the ones that had the pretty armies and the cool conversions and stuff. 
in our generation were the the mainstreamers, and then the outcasts were the guys who had like half handed miniatures and wanted to win and play games, and they were forced to wear cheese hats and you know like got made fun <laughs> of. Um, it's just a dominant cycle, right? So the the the, the counterculture is becoming the people that that sort of can hear the drums and the, the more romantic I think, miniature warriors, the hobby enthused ones. Yeah. Um, and and it'll just cycle back again, like it, it always does. Everything cycles back. So right now, um, and I'm sure this, this answer changes, you know, I don't know, maybe weekly for you, but right now, what are you having the most fun playing? Well, so I, I've, I've spent two months now recording solo content. Um, and actually I think probably the most fun I've had is digging through old games that had solo play. One of the throwbacks to the time before the internet, uh, and even before like computers, um, is a lot of miniature war games and miniature board games got written so that you could play them solo. And that was entirely intentional because the, the game designers and the game companies recognized you might never meet another person as miniature war gaming is. So let's let you enjoy this product no matter what. If you buy this and you never meet another miniature war gamer, you can still enjoy playing this game. And so I played, yeah. I've, I've been painting and playing like 30 year old games. I just finished painting a complete set of hero, uh, Warhammer quest and playing a bunch of it from 1995. Yeah. Um, I played through the Deathwing expansion of Space Hulk, which was from 90, 89. The 89 version of Space Hulk was from 92, I think was the Deathwing expansion. Uh, and, and just going back and like revisiting those games, they're, they're just, they're great games. Like you, if you just updated the miniatures, they would be, they would be hit games today, even like even compared to like the, the current generation market of games. Uh-huh. And, and some of the games even I look at today are, are, are way more stuff heavy than those games, but don't have the same even level of like soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm really enjoying the current generation of, like I said, counterculture solo games. I've been playing Rage of Shadow Deep. I've been playing um, Fallout, uh, Wasteland Warfare. I've been playing a bunch of indie games. I'm playing uh, Perilous Tales, which is like a pulp horror game that my buddy Mike Hutchinson who wrote Gaslands is writing. Um, I've been playing Elder Scrolls, which is Modiphius's new uh, yeah. Bethesda-driven um, solo and cooperative game too. And like I, it's fun because it's like I, <laughs> I spent the last two months basically just getting to do stuff just for me, and that's been great. Like I've gotten to, I've gotten to play a bunch of games where the only person I'm trying to satisfy is myself, and so I can spend as long as I want making the setup just right and the menus <laughs> right. And I'm not trying to like win, so it doesn't really matter. I just want to have the right yeah. stuff to do it, and then I'm always surprised at the outcome because like I'm fighting against the computer. So yeah, it's good. I'd be curious. Um, do you think, what do you think of the impact? I mean, there's some obvious things that I'm concerned about with the whole COVID thing and the impact on, on the hobby, right? And things like, you know, the local gaming stores and things like that. Um, but have you, what are your thoughts? Um, what does post COVID tabletop gaming look like? <laughs> You're assuming it's going to be post COVID. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> so, so, so seven years from now. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, well, I think, I think it's going to be, uh, I'll be honest. I think that almost every leisure sector, in the last like 10 years has had a massive expansion that includes the, the tabletop market. Um, I think certain parts of the tabletop market are better insulated than others. Uh, certainly Dungeons and Dragons isn't going to fare any poorer for this, for this because people can just sit and um, play on zoom and, and there is yep. a social aspect of things like D and D and RPGs, but I think that it's, it's a little more insulated because you don't have to be present. You can be telepresent and still get the same experience. Yep. Um, I think miniature wargaming is certainly a lot more vulnerable, uh, because it was always a social hobby and it, it, it's, 
its major milestones and events were about getting thousands of people into one place. Uh, and it's never had a really strong economy. Right? Mm-hmm. Every, every store that sold miniature wargaming stuff also sold cards and comics and yep. for the most part something else. So I don't know. Um, I think that it's an at-risk segment of the leisure markets. I think that it's going to be different in every locale. I think that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing that will be will be I think a challenge going forward is that every miniature gamer who felt like they had kind of equal playing field opportunity to play their games prior to this pandemic, depending upon how the country they live in reacts, it might be incredibly different how much time they get to spend socializing and playing their hobby games. Yeah. Um, and it might, this might be the thing that shifts us away from that competitive play and shifts us back towards the, the loving the miniatures for what they are and just enjoying having these little display pieces and bits of your imagination that you project out into the world. So mm-hmm. I think that we have a lot of, a lot of possibilities. Um, and I'm not, unfortunately, psychic intent can't tell the future. So I don't, I don't know where it's going to end up. I know for my personal hobby, because of my, my, my values, where my kind of like pie chart of hobby interests lie, uh, it doesn't really affect me. Like the hardest thing for me is getting supplies right now. I can't get Tester's Dolco to save my life, but like, right. it's not really a hardship. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not, not going to end the world if I got some shiny. Be, be, be strong, Ash. Be yeah, strong. Like, really, yeah, thoughts and prayers, please. Thoughts and prayers. Um, so like, there's a certain amount of like, I, 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 I think that my personal hobby will be okay, but I recognize this is going to be a really hard time for retailers, designers, anybody wants to Kickstarter through all this. Like it's going to be, it's going to be an absolute massacre for, I think some of these businesses that were just like this close to the edge. And then all of a sudden just got kicked in the teeth. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what surprised me is, um, so I got back into, I, I like a lot of people got played it as a kid, got out of it, got back into it post-college when I was tired of just working all the time. Right. Yep. And I was like, Oh, I forgot how much I liked little soldiers. <laughs> um, and then when this happened, I was like, you know what? Cause Malifaux has got a great, great way to play online with the vassal. It's mm-hmm. all built in. It's easy to do. And I'm like, Oh, great. I'll transition right to vassal. Cause for role playing transition to roll 20, no problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And really didn't give up much. Um, I don't enjoy playing Malifaux online. I, as much as I love the game and I, I did, I underestimated how important it was to be across the table from another human being to have a physical analog game happening in front of me. Well, just think um, about the bluff mechanics. If we want to circle back to that, that talking about how a mechanic feels to play, holding a handful of cards and looking at your phone and being like, does he have the red joker? Does he have yep. it? I'm holding the black joker. So I know I'm not going to flip the black joker. I don't know. He might flip the black joker. I might get, I might, all get that. I might get lucky. You know what I mean? Like yep. it, there's a certain level of like tension and enjoyment that comes from that tension that you yep. just don't have because it's all being done by a computer and it feels hollow. You know, it feels yeah. a little bit empty. Any games that died that you miss? I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like you've dug I up some know, of them. I don't let games die. If I own the stuff for a game, I typically own it forever. I'm not the guy that, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the guy that goes, Oh, no one's going to play this game. I'm going to get rid of it. Like, yeah, no, it's not me. It's like, because the thing is, though, like, I appreciate the toy soldiers for the toy soldiers. So, like, when a miniature war game ends, I go, "Cool, what new game can I use these models in?" I don't go, I don't go. Oh, these are gonna go in the bid. I can't get my money back for them. So, I don't know. I don't miss any games because the, I still own all the stuff for most of the games that I could play. I, I think I miss the opponents I had for those games. I miss yeah. the time, the time of my life when I was younger and less gray and 
you know, everything didn't hurt when I wake up. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> that's funny. So last question for you. Do you think there is a theme or an intellectual property or something that's kind of sitting out there waiting for a game? Um, so if somebody came up to you and said, I'm going to get the best designers in the world, I've got more money than God. Uh, Ash, what do you think I should make a game for? Mm, well, the, the quick and dirty answer would be Dune. But I don't think oh, you. Nice. I don't think I don't think Dune would stand out enough because Dune's been pillaged already for more right. than the major sci-fi franchises that are out there. Like you can't you can't do Dune and not have people compare it to Star Wars or yep. 40K or any of the things that have basically pillaged that that intellectual property for various ideas. Um, and then the real challenge to answering that question, Craig, is that people haven't made new stuff in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> people keep just recycling prequels, sequels, and based on books. So they do. I would like to see if I was to pick a property. I think it's really interesting. It doesn't currently have a license or somebody working on it. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I really don't know because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of things out there that don't have people working on them that I that I really enjoy. I mean, right? It that isn't like so niche that's like why would you bother? Like you know, right? Like nobody's gonna make a the stand miniature game or a gunslinger miniature game. You know what I mean? Like. I can just make that myself. That's just that's just reskinning some old West game or something yep. into something that I like. Um, um, I don't really know because like it, it's all been done. Like if I if I was gonna say like the Mortal Engines, uh, Pred- the Predator Cities series or something like that, which right. is like a contemporary one. Mm-hmm. Like that's just dystopian wars. Like that's yep. already like you know what I mean. Like it's literally already been done. So it's, it's not like, easy. No, it's, it's really not hard. easy. The best one I've heard yet from guests is uh, G.I. Joe and Transformers. Yeah. And that's not that great. (laughs) G.I. Joe is just any, like, she's already done. Yeah. G.I. Joe is just any, any, like, soldier game. And then Transformers, yeah. You seem super excited about both ideas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of, like, something like, the problem is that, like, it's, there's not enough... (sighs) When I, when I look at an IP that you want to like build something into, it's gonna have elbow room. Like you can't run yeah. out of you can't run out of stuff like five minutes in. The problem with both those franchises to me is you run out of stuff like five minutes in. Yep. I mean, like yeah, you, that's you, true. It, you're you're not gonna have you're only gonna have X number of t- like his tanks and you mm-hmm. know, like things that you can make. Um, and so yeah, I. Uh, it's okay not to like the idea <laughs> I, I love the idea i just can't think, i i hate i hate that i live in a world where i can't think of something I mean, could, they make a, could they make a sandman miniature game like that'd be kind of cool Ooh, that's interesting but like, but like how would you just have like the endless and they would just be i don't know it'd be dark m- moping around moping around <laughs> talking about how, how whatever their various problems are most important problem. uh, roll against your sadness <laughs> yeah yeah death shows up you all die oh. uh, that's funny uh, well ash i really appreciate you taking the time my friend um obviously we're gonna have links to uh to the games that are out there and obviously to your youtube channel for the very few people that uh, don't already have it anything else you want to plug before we go um yeah go to blastermag.com let me just see if that's actually something that's a real URL. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm buy it because Ash hasn't bought it yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Because, no, that one's, it's Blaster hyphen mag. Greg's going to yell at me for not getting this right. Hang on. I think because he did the URL. Is this the correct one? Nope. Oh, my God. Ash, why are you bad at this? 
Blaster. Oh no, because I did I did blastmag.com. Is it this one? Blastmag. There you go. Yeah, blaster-mag.com. All right. Uh, and uh, yeah, check out the anthology we're putting together because it's gonna be super fun and it's gonna have stuff for tons of your favorite games and stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. And we're gonna make a mixtape. I think every quarter of just like cool. indie content. So check it out. Very very cool. All right. Thanks again, my friend. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. I'm a bad patron. I didn't know it was. You have the beta rules. Yeah, yeah. If you just um, if you want the links to all that stuff, just go to the um, Gamble's Facebook page, and mm-hmm. there's a pinned post at the top that has all your links, so you can find the, the document. You can go download and check it out. Oh no, you froze! Shit. I'll be back. Oh, you're back. Let me know you can hear me. I can hear you. You're back. All right. Yeah, you just like went to carbonate for a second. All right. Figure out how to start this. Who likes robots? I like robots. Zombie movies. If you if you ever want to like if you ever talk to a film student, and I've talked to a lot of film students, um, aren't really. Oh, I just figured out what was wrong with this. Never mind. That's why. This is less scratchy now. Yeah. Okay. It was because it's because this is a really old headset because my MacBook doesn't have a new lightning thing. And I can't hear and myself just, anymore. You can't hear yourself anymore. It's because <laughs> no. I, I literally just tucked the wire back in here. Because <laughs> yeah, like my new lightning bolt headset. You, you, they sell left. headphones now. You know that, right? Yeah, but, but the new ones won't work on this because this has a, this has a, this has a, 10, has a 10 millimeter plug and it's and like this brand new headphone I have right here won't fit it because I have to get an adapter. <laughs> oh, should I have an adapter? Never mind. I should just use that. Don't worry about it. Um, That's funny. So, 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 so the thing that makes it different is right. That was good, man. Cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. It's like you've been on mic before. (laughs) It's like I've told this story many times.
I did a whole seminar actually at uh, Halcon this year about literally what we're talking about today. Oh yeah, they flew me to yeah, they flew me to Halifax. And I sat down and did a game design and um, and social media internet thing. Talking about, <laughs> talking about talking about how do, you, how do you end up being forty years old and somehow making money playing social media? It's legitimate. Like it's a really confusing question for journalists. They're like, what? What do you? I'm sure. Is paying money for this? Yeah. Like, all right, I'll bring us back. So we ended up that whole segment I'm dropping because we ended up talking about all of it through the other segments. That's funny. I, know. <laughs> I was looking at it and I was like, we've already talked about all this. So we'll drop a segment. Perfect. Next one we are. Slay your darlings. Get, get done faster. That's it. All right.